Our text this morning is uh, out of the book of Genesis. I'm not going to read it all because it is quite lengthy. If you looked at your program, it says Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 through Genesis chapter 2. The problem is I really didn't know what to read and what not to read. We're going to obviously talk about the text, but uh, we're going to read just a very short uh, three verses, the very uh, beginning verses. If you would be standing as we read the Word of God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, may God bless the reading of his word. I like that song. You know how life throws those curves at you? How you're just kind of rocking along and wham, something hits, happens that is totally unexpected. Maybe something really big, devastating and traumatic. Sometimes it may be something small, even inconsequential, but enough just to jolt you a bit. A most dangerous question to ask, in my opinion, is a why question. Why did such and such happen? Why does or why me? Why questions don't always have answers. And even the ones that might be answerable don't always satisfy our need for understanding. A couple of weeks ago, I was visiting with a young lady whose favorite aunt, one who she was very close to, died on her wedding day. The lady asked me, how would God let that happen? Why did she die on my wedding day? I offered consolation, I made every effort to empathize, but eventually I shrugged my shoulders and I said, I don't know. Instead of why questions, I invited her, as I do everyone, to ask what or how questions. What can I do to make this situation better? What can we do to cope with what happened? Or how do we find peace uh, to live in spite of, and you fill in the blank. What or how questions allow room for action. They open doors that help us to live and cope with things that happen to us. They can lead to renewed life and hope. And as I was researching and reading and studying for this lesson, I came across some information that I'd never before heard. Kind of caught me off guard. Jolted me just a little bit. Not really what I was expecting. Statement read just like this. Most biblical scholars are in agreement that Genesis is not one of the oldest books of the Bible. And, in all probability, that it was written sometime during the 6th century B.C. and was addressed to the remnant community of exiled Jews who had been dragged off into bondage. And I was kind of like that little minion on the movie Despicable Me. I said, what? (laughs) What? What am I going to do with this? Now, because I'm trained not to ask why questions, I said, what am I going to do with this? How am I going to reconcile this information? Well, I'm going to tell you right off the bat, I'm not going to suggest that because most scholars say and agree that you or I need to fall in line, and I'm certainly comfortable with being a part of the minority if that's where I currently stand. 
But I'm also not about to stand up here and start rattling off reasons why this claim may be right or wrong. However, the more I thought about and mulled over the ideas in my mind, and the more I read and processed the information related to the passage, an idea began to form that I don't think in any way discounts the creation story, no matter what your perspective. If anything, it is an idea that hopefully will broaden the creation story and its application to our life. So if you'll just indulge me for a few minutes, let's go back in time just a little bit. You know the story. Israel and Judah are already uh, separated, separate uh, two kingdoms. Israel is known as the northern kingdom and Judah as the southern Each kingdom over a period of several hundred years is governed by different kings who, with the exception of a couple here and there, did not submit to God or his laws, and consequently God used foreign nations to punish their rebellion. Eventually, the northern kingdom of Israel fell to the Assyrians, and later the southern kingdom of Judah fell to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And over a period of ten or so years, Nebuchadnezzar carried off Jews into Babylon, where they remained captive for some 70 years before the opportunity to return would make itself available. Now, we know that during their exile, they got discouraged and depressed. There's a psalm, and I failed to look to see which one it was, but also a song that we sing sometimes. By the rivers of Babylon, where we sat down and where we wept. As we remembered Zion, we know that they begin to wonder what happened to their God because the Babylonian gods seem to have a pretty good grasp on their future. Their enemies, it appeared, had not only defeated them, but were working to assimilate them. Nonetheless, in their midst, we also know of some who stood firm on their hope in God. Ezra, Nehemiah. Ezekiel, Daniel. So just imagine for a minute one of them standing up, crowd kind of like this, and beginning to speak. Do you remember the beginning? In the beginning when God created the heavens and the earth, he took that formless void, that black gob of nothing, and uttered the words, let there be light. And immediately, just like that, there was light. And then another one stands up and says, yeah, I remember that. It was a giant mess, a hopeless situation. It was dark and dreary, and with simple words out of his mouth, the darkness faded to make room for the light. And the light he called day, and the dark he called night. Yeah, and the next day he was looking at the boundless waters and said, let there be sky. And the bluest firmament that you ever saw separated the waters. And then the day after that, he said, let there be land. And just like that, the, dry, the waters receded, the dry ground appeared, and then grass and bushes and plants and trees. And it was the most luscious contrast of browns and greens and other colors that had ever been seen. Maybe about now, the people start to look around at each other. Eyes begin to open wider. Brows rise. Smile here and there. Maybe even a hint of excitement. As they recall how God took something, or rather nothing, and, ma- and transformed it into something. Something good, something tangible, something with color, something with life. 
And then perhaps another joins in. And the next day, he placed the sun in the day sky and the moon and the stars in the night sky. And on the fifth day, he filled the waters with fish and the skies with birds. And the next day, you remember, that's the day he created man and woman along with all the animals. Then he stood back and he looked at what he had done. And he said, wow, this is really good. And then he sat down and rested because his work was done. You remember that story? How in the beginning he took that cold, ugly, and scary mess and made something warm, inviting, and beautiful? Remember the psalm that David wrote? The one that Jansen just read? When I consider his heavens, the work of his fingers, the moon and the stars, which he set in place, who am I that you are mindful of me? Who is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you cared for him? Oh, he's mindful. Our God, the sovereign God of heavens, of the heavens and the earth, whose name is above all names, he is still with us. He can still do it, and he will fix this mess that we're in. I think I'm pretty safe saying that the book of Genesis was not written to make a scientific claim about how the world was made but rather to make a confession of faith about why it was made, to reveal the power of God. Not only his power over heaven and earth, but over the deep and over evil itself. Nothing stands against the sovereignty of this God who brings order out of chaos. Our God is a God who overcomes evil to bring order, stability, and peace to the earth and its inhabitants. That just as God in the beginning moved over the dark waters to restore order and bring life and hope, still today moves over the dark times and the traumatic experiences of our life, brooding over them with his spirit. Like the scripture says, brooding is what a mother hen does when she's sitting on her nest and on the eggs. She's keeping them warm. She's protecting them as she's waiting for them to hatch. The spirit is brooding over our miserable situations Seeking to restore hope and joy. Wow. What a powerful image. There is no chaos, no darkness, no mess, no situation in which you, I, or anybody else finds himself out of which God cannot still bring life, hope, and joy. When God wrote the Bible, he didn't give us a ponderous theology book divided into sections labeled God and creation and man and sin. Instead, he gave us a story about him and his dealings with all kinds of people and how they responded to his word. As we read these stories, we learn a great deal about him, about ourselves, and about our world. And at some point, we discover that our own personal story is found somewhere in the pages of Scripture. And whether it is or was like the Jews exiled in Babylon or Daniel in the lion's den or Joseph in Egypt or Paul in prison, they all ask the same questions that we still ask today. Can life begin again for me? Is new life stirring in the midst of the death-ridden waters that I am in? Is it safe to trust? Is it safe to hope? Is it safe to go on living my life as bravely and courageously as they did, believing that the light would or will 
one day shine again. Yeah, yes, yes. There are so many things that make us afraid. There are situations and tragedies that come our way that throw us for a loop, knock us off kilter, suck the life right out of us. We have either lost a job or are afraid of losing a job. We are afraid of being ridiculed, that people will talk or that we will fail. Our spouse has been unfaithful or we're afraid that he or she will be unfaithful. Some of us have had cancer. Some of us have cancer. And some of us are afraid we're going to get cancer. We fear that we're not raising our children in the proper way or that we messed up somehow because they didn't turn out the way that we had hoped. We wonder whether the economy is going to improve or if it will continue to deteriorate and what that means with regard to our jobs and our investments. Am I going to be the next highway fatality? The next victim of a violent crime? How many of us fear that we will be out of fashion or worse, old-fashioned? We have some folks among us whose loved ones have lived in or died in harm's way because of wars fought in other parts of the world. And we have folks among us today, right now, whose husbands, wives, children, parents are fighting battles in countries who may wonder if they will be the next to receive that dreaded call. Some of us are blessed by the rise in oil prices, while others of us fear that the same rise will make it impossible to live. We are afraid that we will die or that the person we love most in this world will die. And some of us don't fear it because we're living that right now. So what do we do? In my experience, when we ask why questions and don't get the answers that we want or like, we tend to build up walls of protection around ourselves. We protect ourselves so that we will always be safe. We have many defenses, both inner and outer, that no threat will ever harm us. We invent mechanisms to keep others at bay, becoming silent and reserved, dominant and unrepentant, nasty, tyrannical, unreasonable and petulant, weak and pathetic, dependent and incapable, all in an effort to mask the reality of our fear and to keep ourselves safe from being hurt. Occasionally, there are interludes, times when we see, even if dimly, that it is possible to live differently. A new thought crosses our mind. We fall in love. A child is born. Forgiveness comes to us out of nowhere. A door opens where before everything seemed solidly shut. And we sense that we have the option to choose something different. And sometimes we do. But many times, we continue down the path of dull, bland, fearful mediocrity. The sin of despair regains its hold. The sin of giving up of giving in, of surrendering to the forces of darkness and hopelessness. The sin of choosing to live dull, drab, safe, complacent, mediocre lives when the Spirit is urging us to reach for more and to be more. In Alice Walker's novel, The Color Purple, there's a scene where Sally, a battered and depressed woman living in a dark and hopeless situation, married to a brutal and sadistic husband, meets Suge Avery, a sultry and free-wheeling songstress. And the two of them engage in a conversation. And by the way, if you saw the movie, this, they took a whole lot of this out, so you have to read the book to get this piece. 
But they engage in a conversation about God, about God, which eventually leads to Sally's personal liberation. Suge says, I believe God inside you and inside everybody else. You come into this world with God, but only those that search for it find it. Sometime it just manifests itself even if you're not looking or don't know what you're looking for. Trouble does it for most folks, I think. Sorrow, feeling like dirt. It? Sally asked. Yeah, it. God ain't a he or a she, but a it. But what do it look like? It don't look like nothing, says Suge. It ain't a picture show. It ain't something you can look at apart from anything else, including yourself. I believe God is everything. Everything that is or ever was or ever will be. And when you feel that and be happy to feel that, then you found it. Listen. God love everything you love and the mess of stuff you don't. He just want to share a good thing. I think it make God real mad if you walk by the color purple in the field somewhere and don't notice it. What God do when he get mad? Oh, he makes something else. People think pleasing God is all God care about. But any fool living in the world can see that God always trying to please us back. Yeah, yeah, said Suge. God always making little surprises and springing them on us when we least expect them. So Sally was asking the same question that you and I and everybody else asked. Is it safe to trust? Yeah. Is new life stirring in the midst of the death-ridden waters that I'm in? Yes. Is it safe to hope? Sure. Is it safe to believe that light will one day shine again? Yes. Just like in the beginning, God can, will take any situation that you or I give him, and just as he created, he will restore. Larissa and I were visiting a little bit about some of these thoughts, and she came across an interesting little tidbit. In the Greek, chaos and Christ both begin and end with the same letters, chi and sigma, chaos, Christos. Chaos, darkness. Christ, light. Chaos, evil. Christ, good. Chaos, ugly. Christ, beautiful. God brought order and light out of chaos at creation. And Christ brings order and light into our lives at re-creation. The Spirit of God is still renewing the face of the earth. And he will renew us. If we give him the opportunity. Going back to the psalm that was read earlier. He asks us to live in gratitude and in wonder for our relationship to God. God is the author of life and the sustainer of life. He is at the beginning. He, as in the beginning, I'm sorry, asks us to step out of our anxiety and despair and move into hope and joy. For we have life. And we know it. You know, many of you here struggling with different situations. Many of you have shared those with us. You're on a prayer list. Many people pray for you daily. We pray for you weekly. But don't leave this place. If you're in a chaos, a chaotic situation, don't leave this place today and carry that chaos with you. Let, let somebody know. In a minute, just like we always do every Sunday, we're going to stand, we're going to sing a song. 
And some of our leaders and some of our elders are going to be standing at the perimeters of the, of, of the building. And if you've got something that's heavy on your heart, go up to one of them. Go up and share it with them. Don't let today, or let today be the day that you take that off of your chest and leave it with someone and let God begin to restore hope and let God begin to restore life. Let's stand and sing.